Hi, this is Tamsin Granger. This is Dan Abuhoff. Tamsin and Dan read the paper. Read the paper. Yes, come on, let's go. Wake up. Tamsin and Dan read the paper, June 27th, a Monday. 2022. In 2022, yes, of course. Well, I'm exhausted. Because we've been traveling. We've been traveling. We've been traveling. Not together. No, not together. Separate uh, vacations with, vacations. with uh, family. Say family. Well, I did my annual jaunt down to Flowery Branch, Georgia. To celebrate your mom's birthday. Yeah, to can see you, my mom. Can you get ba- your mom's Bake her age? a cake. Are you allowed to, to disclose your mom's she's, age? Yes, she's very proud that she's 97. 97. 97. And uh, a good time was had by all. Right, Atlanta. Flowery Branch. Outside Celebrated Atlanta. with crab cakes. Well, that's the way to celebrate. Well, you know, we, we spent a lot of time... Our family living in Maryland, so right. we're partial to crab. Yeah. Did your mother eat the crab cakes? Yes. Oh, very good, very good. All right. So uh, there was that. You, meanwhile, Visited. went even, even farther afield. You went all the way to Miami. Yes, to visit my brother, uh, Michael, uh, celebrating his, I think I can say, his 65th birthday. Younger brother. And... Um, Interestingly, uh, at least the first day, Atlanta seemed to have a higher temperature than Miami. I mean, we were it's, like 89, it was very high. but it was it was very high. Miami was 95. But as I was saying to you, it's a little humid in Miami, perhaps more humid than Atlanta. But um, possibly. Listen, weather's a factor there, as uh, Michael and his sons uh, Sean and Ryan uh, fully disclosed. It's hot down there during the summertime. I mean, these are not the pleasant five months. So um, you got to think about when so you're going to be outside. We're unprepared for that because yeah, we was... think of this time of year as a being outside time of year. All right. But down there, it's a staying inside time That's of year. That's exactly right. I mean, although, it's stifling. although in, in you know in Georgia we made it outside a fair amount. They had a very pleasant veranda with mm-hmm. uh, ceiling fans going. Right. And they live right off of Lake Lanier. Mm-hmm. Or right on Lake Lanier. And uh, I did some swimming in the lake, as I like to do. That's very brave, yeah. Yeah, it was good. But it's very, very warm water. Yeah. I mean, not at all like uh, the New Jersey Shore at this time of no, year. No, it's, for, it's freezing. It's 65 not, at best. So Michael's condo is very nice. And it's on a, what has to be a, a man-made lake um, or body of water which is the center of this this condominium development. And he and some other folks have uh, kayaks. And we actually went out on the kayaks, and um, which was fun, although I will say, as uh, I guess Ryan cautioned, you usually want to do that first thing in the morning, like before 9. We were out there at 11 or 12, and it was hot, hot. But if you get enough speed going in the kayak, which of course I did, uh, you get a little breeze that way, right? So uh, there was that. And uh, Michael did say you could swim, but the water's a little murky. and uh, It was not inviting. No, not inviting. I did not take that as an endorsement. We did go to a baseball game. We went to uh, Lone Depot Park, uh, where I understand not too many people go because the Marlins are not popular down there. But the Miami Marlins were playing the Mets, and quite a few uh, Mets fans made their way to the game. It was well attended. Um, and uh, we had fantastic seats. I guess uh, Ryan must have gotten the seats. They were unbelievably good. I was sitting like two rows behind Don Mattingly 
Don Mattingly, you should know, is the manager of the uh, Miami Marlins. So I was practically in the dugout. And at certain points, I could have given some advice to Mattingly, which have turned the tide in the game, but I'm rooting for the Mets. Why would I do that? <laughs> and the Mets uh, won a very close and exciting game uh, on the strength of two Pete Alonso home runs. Uh, so it so a, a good time was had by yes, all. Yes, it was quite the event. Quite the event. Mm-hmm. And now we're reunited. Seeing we can put things back together. Right? Yes, uh, yes. Speaking of which, I did repair the toilet today already. So. Did you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. New new flapper. Yeah, did you? Yeah. Okay. Cool. I'll explain to you what that means later. Yeah, yes, explain it. <laughs> explain it to me later. Uh, not on the podcast. All right. So in any event, uh, we got some stuff to cover here. So you had an article that I thought was really interesting. Well, Maybe I'm more excited about it than you are. It's a, well, it, uh, um, it really. Uh, there's an article in uh, the op-ed section yeah. of the Times that you showed me. Right. But it's all to, um, you know, kind of herald the uh, publishing of a book by Ed Young called An Immense World. Right. How Animal Senses Reveal the Hidden Realms Around Us. Right. And uh, interesting, the review in the Times of the book starts out by telling the story of uh, tree frog embryos that I just love. As one does, yes. (laughs) So it turns out tree frog embryos in their unhatched eggs can sense the vibrations of an approaching predator. You're kidding me. All right. But what can they do about it? Release an enzyme from their faces... Wow. That dissolves the membrane, the castings that house them, allowing them to... Disperse. Yeah, and escape. Well, that's, you know, I didn't know that. Isn't that cool? Didn't know that, strangely enough. But Um, but that's the theme, the idea that there's a lot going on in animals, from the animal's perspective in particular. And one way of looking at it is, uh, is the way the headline in the other article related to this enzyme said, the wondrous world... That only animals see. Well, I like the way he started that op-ed as well, saying, you know, we go crazy with all these uh, nature shows, um, just showing the natural world from our, in our context, from Mm. our point of view, imposing various um, human plots and stories well, on the animals really, and their lives. Really, sort of and, human sensibilities on the yeah, animals. Here's what yeah. the animal's doing because the animal must be doing this and must yeah. be thinking about that. Yeah. When in fact, there's no reason to believe that's the case. And when in fact, what he points out is uh, what's really interesting is how the animals yeah. see and react to the world right. and how that's much more interesting than our world and uh, has more of everything, more colors, more magnetic fields they can sense. Right. I mean, there's just so much more going on. Well, and we're, you know, confining our understanding of the animals to our little teeny tiny fraction well, it's not of so our much a, view of the world. It's a fraction, sort of, we each have our own narrow perspective. And, 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 and he points out what that is called. Yes, and it is called what? The Umwelt. The Umwelt, yeah. And we each, you know, every species has a way of, it, it's your little sort of perspective of the world. It's your, uh, how you see right. the environment 
around you. It's your way of sensing what the environment is. And it, it relates to the way, literally, the way we see and the way certain animals see, the way we hear, the way they hear, you know, our sense of darkness and light, uh, and even things that go beyond uh, sight and hearing. Uh, the sensibilities, the animals are just different. So we're all, in a sense, in our own worlds. Yeah. Uh, which is weird. But uh, it it's weird. It just it just makes us seem smaller and smaller and smaller. Well, it's not, again, it's not about us. And it, just, it just makes yeah, it makes yeah. make one appreciate that every every species has a different take on things, and, and we're coming at things differently. A different take, and uh, but we're just, seeing only there, a, it, yeah, yeah. And there are many more possibilities, many more aspects to well, the world that least, we don't even understand. We're sensing a fraction of what uh, stimuli there are out there. Yeah. Is, is what and how saying. silly it is that we are so stuck on things like light. And, well, you it's know, not silly. It's just what we can do. Well, it's, yeah, but I mean, for other animals, the darkness is the most yeah, but just, fascinating, revealing, it makes perfect, comfortable time. But it makes perfect sense for us and it makes perfect sense for them. To operate in a completely different way. I'm not way saying life. I want to be a rattlesnake. Well, it's, it's not silly. Well, it was all I'm just saying, saying yeah. it's, you know, it's. Uh, I think it is silly to try to um, impose yes. our sort of umwelt yeah. understanding of the world right. on the animals. Right, you're right. Because uh, right. obviously they have. That's true. Um, you know, so much more going on and, and such fascinating world to be understanding so anyway so the book again is called an immense world how animal senses reveal the hidden realms around us and it really uh sounds like it's going to be another one of those uh fun books to read Mm -hmm. and yeah you gave the author ed young ed young yeah pulitzer prize winning really yeah okay um yeah i thought that was something well, uh, and yet, here's something. Here's a story from a human point of view. It's a story about antlers getting tangled. Uh, it turns out when uh, animals do battle, uh, two different uh, kinds of uh, elk, let's say, who each have antlers, and we know the ample antlers look like they're potential weapons and they sort of can butt heads and the like, um, that doesn't work out so well. Well, here are the interesting things. Yeah. Okay. First of all... Um, yeah, antlers look like they would be good for fighting, but they're not. Yeah. Uh, mainly, mainly you get locked. Yeah. You know, you can get locked, and once uh, two uh, deer or elk or whoever get their antlers locked with each other, they're kind of stuck. Right. They can't do anything. Well, they can die. They, they die can like die. It. Yeah. And uh, you know, they mentioned uh, three deer that got in a fight. Yeah. And ended up drowning in a stream mm-hmm. together. Once in a while. A um, hunter or somebody will drop by and see them and, you know, disentangle, disentangle them right. or, or, or whatever. But there, I think they mentioned in this article, there, you know, um, somebody actually took a photograph of an elk or a, a large deer um, prancing about with uh, another deer's head stuck in his oh antlers. Oh, my God. Yeah. Okay. So that's a little gross. Uh, but even more interesting than that was... A, um, an actual discussion of the difference between horns and antlers. Okay. Do you know the difference between no. horns and antlers? No, I don't. Okay. Horns are permanent cores of bone encased in sheaths of keratin, while antlers are bones 
that grow and shed seasonally, starting as velvety nubs, then sprouting into sharp branches. So okay. they're, they're, of course, a mating thing. Because yeah. if you have cool antlers, it means you're healthy right. and, you know, probably smart. You've survived uh, many years. Because I think as you get older, the, the antlers are more elaborate, mm-hmm. even though they fall off and grow grow back every year and mm-hmm. so on. So it's something to use to show off and, and look intimidating, but not necessarily uh, so fabulous when it comes down to actual battle. More for posturing. A lot of battles like that, to be honest. All right. So in that way, you have the uh, you have similarities between animals and people. Yes. Yeah. Yes. But anyway, if you're interested, you can Google and see a lot of weird pictures of yeah, deer and elks kind of okay. stuck in awkward sad. situations, if not deadly situations. All right. So let's get the sports because you know that's what matters. Um, we pick up antlers sometimes. Really? Yeah. We have one right now on our uh, mantle over the fireplace. There's really? an antler one of the kids got in the yard. I'll have to yeah. take a closer look. Because Lord knows we have many deer yes. roaming around yeah. our yard. So uh, speaking of the Mets, and speaking in particular of Pete Alonzo, I'm going to show you a picture of Pete Alonzo. And what do you see him doing? And you No see antlers. Doing. He's taking a deep breath. He's taking a deep breath. And you notice, or he's singing the uh, national anthem. I'm not sure. He's taking a deep breath. Could be oh, say can you see? Um, and there's an article about the fact that the Mets are hitting better this year, particularly in pressure situations, because a group of them t- have adopted the practice of taking deep breaths and breathing more deeply in critical situations, and that that changes your mental outlook, puts you in a better frame of mind, prepares you to handle the situation in front of you, and they've had greater success as a result. So do they have like a breathing coach? Uh, yes, uh, there is a coach involved. But let me just identify the players because everyone's wondering which players do this. The answer is Brandon Nimmo, Pete Alonso, uh, Mark Hanna, and uh, Jeff McNeil. And those are four people who are having extremely good seasons. They're standouts for the Mets this year. Yes, I would say they are four people that you usually don't say mean things about when they come up to Exactly back. right. Uh, and, uh, you know, they talk about what it does. Lonzo says, for sure it's help taking a deep breath. Um, here's why. Uh, oh, Brandon Nimmo explains it best. In any situation... I would be lying if I said my heart wasn't beating pretty fast. You get this feeling of anxiety that comes over you. And a way to combat that is to try and breathe a little bit. Take deep breaths and you can actually slow your heartbeat down. Well, that's not, you know, news from the front. I mean, I can't say it's startling that uh, people have reached that conclusion. And yet, uh, Nimmo's adopted that practice after being encouraged to do it by the Mets uh, mental skills coach, uh, Will Lenzner, some years ago. Uh, and he uses it more than ever now. Uh, and, you know, you want to call it mindfulness, you can call it whatever you like. But um, apparently it's made a change. I mean, uh, Mark Hanna says it's easy in a day-in, day-out basis to lose focus. This keeps you dialed in. Uh, you know? Alonzo says, when I get up there, it's basically taking my breaths and turning the mind off. The best is when I feel like numb in the box, and I just trust what I see and go from there. 
you know, and finally Nimmo, when your adrenaline spikes and you get into an anxious fight or flight state, it shuts down the part of your brain that thinks critically and you reset with the breathing. I mean, it sounds like the simplest thing in the world. Well, we've, been, we've been talking for a while about uh, the importance of uh, breathing. breathing and the idea, but it's funny know, to breathing see. Breathing can do everything. But also, remember just a couple of weeks ago, the thing about the vagus nerve and how important the vagus right. nerve is right. and what stimulates that? What? Regulated breathing. Really? Yeah. Well, listen, you watch the game. I know I, so, I tie you to the chair sometimes and force you to watch the match. You'll see, and maybe you remember, yeah. Alonzo will step out almost every pitch in a critical situation and lean back and take a long, deep breath. Yeah, and he's yeah. he's hit twenty one home runs this year. But this is not something just for baseball. Players. No, of course not. But uh, this could improve anybody's life. It might. Are but, you listening, Mom? Now, listen, I'm more concerned about the Mets. So uh, it, it, if you're not what, concerned about everybody, well, well just I, the Mets. I'm narrowly focused in this article. This is what's bringing the Mets success. I mean. Those are four guys who were standouts in this year. And, yeah. uh, well, in a year or two, they're all going to be chuckling. What about that nonsense about breathing? Whoa, that didn't get well, us Canada, very far. Mark Hanna said, and Mark is a little bit of a hippie. He said that you know people put him onto these websites about breathing. He said, to tell you the truth, a lot of those websites are a little hokey. His word, hokey. Yeah. But you know, it's all it is. It's just breathing deeply. There's no magic yeah. to it. As soon as you know, they turn the corner in their usual way. Yeah. There'll be no more uh, articles about how good breathing is. You think is. the Mets are going to start losing? I didn't. I just said turn the corner. <laughs> you got the wrong team. Let's see what they do tomorrow against the Astros. Go ahead. What, what, what do you got? Well, you found this article for me. Yeah. And it is kind of funny. Because we do, um, you know, I, I've worked for a couple of different big companies. Yeah. And um, we, you know. We are always amused by company strategies for team building right. and stuff team like building that. Team building exercises yeah. at retreats and, and all that. Right. right. Um, that often seem to do everything but build teams. Right. Uh, and uh, They're just silly. here's one, you know, that really ends badly. <laughs> and uh, it, in Switzerland, it involved uh, walking over hot coals. Yeah. And people actually did get burned. <laughs> It's a stand. Apparently, there's a guy who offers this service. He comes to people's retreats and he uh, has people do exercise of walking over hot coals. But I don't think that was this guy. Oh, no, it was just a different guy? Yeah. Uh, but in any event, uh, yeah, well, it's international. You can go to any retreat and No, it's but possible. apparently it's a thing. You it know, is a thing. that uh, it's a way of, they, they teach you how to walk on hot coals and it's a way, then you believe you can do anything. You know, it, it gives you this positive, yeah. you know, power. Uh, self, and yet it, it sounds like an extreme, extremely ambitious exercise to uh, include. Well, you know, if you read the, the whole article, agenda. apparently it's not that ambitious. That it's uh, if done properly with yes. the right kind of wood, yeah, um, and walking the right way, yeah, perhaps anybody could indeed do it. They make it sound okay. it's doable. Um, the one, one of the experts they talked to, a physicist, David Wiley, yeah. said that coals at 1,000 degrees yeah. are safe to walk on for 20 feet or more. Mm -hmm. Okay. And he has walked on coals that temperature for 495 feet mm -hmm. without getting a blister. Right. And the way okay. to do it so is it's you, possible. you keep your pace up and you keep your foot arched a little bit and you just march through. 
But how many times have you been in some kind of team building situation where the leader of the group has just got some kind of, you know, printout from a website and they're saying, okay, and now we do this and everybody turn and do that. And they, they're pretty clueless. So I can just imagine this is what it was that somebody just handed out. This is basically how it's done. No problem. Lead your group to do this. Boom. Well, disaster. Look, I, I can on the one hand believe that it's, it's potentially doable. And on the other hand, understand that it's a little on the risky side because uh, someone might get the coals a little hotter than a thousand degrees. No one's really measuring. Also, you're not supposed to put the coals on hot sand or on sand. If the coals are on sand, right, but, the heat's yeah, going to be wrong. But the point is, it can go I, wrong. Yeah, it can go. It wrong. can go wrong, and, especially if you just, you know, you know, somebody says, "All right, you're in charge of the hot coal walking." Right. You know, and they go, they Google it, and you know, they're the expert. Yes. Well, not a surprise. Uh, but that was in Switzerland, yes. you know. You don't don't see that happening in New Hope. Well, but you uh, you have that exercise in the United States. Um, all right. So there was an article about New Jersey basketball, and you know, I, I uh, I'm involved in coaching a high school basketball team, and uh, it's in Pennsylvania. But a lot of the opponents are uh, well, it's Jersey and Pennsylvania. We're on the Jersey border, and. Uh, I have noticed that a lot of these these kids seem to me, and I'll talk about our team, but uh, let me focus on the opposing teams. Surprisingly good. I mean, really good. Um, very impressive and yeah, very talented. And a lot of them are Catholic schools. And my initial reaction was, well, if they're Catholic schools, maybe they're limited as the kind of players they might attract. How can they be this good? Well, it turns out, I was just looking at it the wrong way. The article in the Times says, first of all, New Jersey has overtaken New York as the hotbed of uh, scholastic basketball activity. Um, And a lot of them are Catholic schools. uh, And the point that you made to me and others have made to me is that Catholic schools are recruiting. Uh, And it's easier for them to attract, uh, you know, high-level athletes because, uh, you know, they're bringing them to the schools. It's not just a matter of who lives within, uh, you know, a quarter mile of the the school building. Um, any event, they have a whole list of people who are playing the Jersey Scholastic Basketball who are in the top 10 or 20 in the nation in terms of uh, recruiting lists. Uh, and, and so why is it? There's no real uh, reason uh, in my mind. Uh, what they keep coming back to is, they literally say this, you can tell me if you believe it or not, that it takes a certain toughness to live and prosper in a major metropolitan area in the Northeast and uh, that as a result, the kids grow up with a certain confidence, a certain swagger, and a physicality. They aren't afraid of physical basketball. They play on these AAU teams. And when they play you know, schools from other parts of the country, they play a much more physical style of basketball. And it's a physical style of basketball that allows them to prosper and, and that the college coaches and even the pro coaches appreciate and allows them to prosper at the next level. Yeah, so there you go. I mean, well, you've seen T-shirts that say "Jersey only the strong survive." Yes, stuff like I that. have, yeah. but I never really believed it. I mean, I, those are T-shirts, right? <laughs> uh, but uh, you know, yeah, uh, cliches are cliches for a reason. All right, now I know. I mean, uh, I, look, I've seen it firsthand. I watch these kids play, and uh, wow, I mean, uh, highly athletic, very physical uh, defensively. Um, you know, uh, and very impressive. And you can easily envision a lot of them playing at the next level. 
So it turns out my eyes do not deceive me. I mean, right. uh, I'm watching a lot of very high-level basketball. So there you go. Right. But the, I guess part of it is the, the aspect that they, the Catholic schools can recruit and build a team. Yeah. Public school, you get what you get. Right. Well, look, it's not only Catholic schools. I mean, uh, but they That's list part the of the magic? Or yeah, but it is, there's Don Bosco Prep, which is, I think, a private school, Hudson Catholic, Camden High School, uh, Roselle Catholic, um, you know, a lot of schools in Jersey. Um, and, I, you know, there are other schools in Pennsylvania I could name, too. I, all I know is what I'm seeing. And uh, what I'm seeing is pretty impressive. And it's not so much, uh, yeah, the kids play differently today. It's all, you know, they, they get, they're into outside shooting. That doesn't impress me so much. What impresses me more is the physical and athletic defense. Uh, it's really something. Really something. All right. So. Um, go Jersey. Yes, go Jersey. Yes. So. You didn't have anything to tell me about the NBA? Oh, I did. I did. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah you're right. Okay. I did have a final note. On the draft, the NBA draft was this week, but there's one particular uh, uh, draft drafted player who uh, you know aroused my interest, and his name is um, Nikola Jovic. And you're going to say, "Well, gee, Nikola Jovic, he didn't, was, didn't you talk about him already?" Yes, he won the MVP the last two years, and I would so. say, "Well, that sounds right, but it's not true. The person who won the MVP the last two years was not Nikola Jovic, but Nikola Jokic." This okay. is Nikola Jovic. Nikola Jovic, though, has a lot of similarities to Nikola Jokic. Uh, they are both from Serbia. They're both big men. And, uh, no coincidence perhaps, they're both former water polo players. Uh, and uh, Jovic, the young man we're talking about right now, wanted, in fact, to be a professional water polo player. But he got so tall, they said, you know, maybe basketball is the way to go. As he put it, it was pretty easy to see the basketball be a better choice than water polo. And the advantage that we talked about before is, you know, when you handle the ball and water polo is with one hand, and as you get to basketball, what you see when you watch uh, Jokic play is that it gives him an instinct for one-hand passes and makes him quite valuable. He's running the offense from the center of the court as a center. You rarely see that. Yeah. But a lot of it is water polo sensibility. Well, there's another guy with a similar name and a similar game mm-hmm. who is now a first-round draft pick in the NBA uh, as of two days ago. And uh, there you go. I don't know if there's going to be a thing or not. I don't know how many water polo players named Nikola are in Serbia right now. We're going to be close to seven feet tall. But there you go. Well, I bet those guys are good at breathing. Yeah, that's another point. They probably are. Because, I mean, to be a water polo, you have to be a, be a good water polo player. You have to be good at swimming. Right. Swimming involves deep breathing. And that's a high level know? of fitness. Right. You right. have to be able to sort of spin your legs while you're doing a lot of things at the same time. And it's no great advantage to be tall in water polo. It's a little Every, bit. Well, a little bit. But everybody's... Um, Louis Nicolau used to always say, everybody's the same height in eight feet of water. Yes, because Louis was short. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, everyone's not the same height. Or because if you have a longer torso, you're going to get up higher out of the water. But, you know, your leg strength, uh, you know, is, is key in that also. So. All right. So heading out to Montana, this is just, you know, one of those, uh, I don't know, kind of travel porn uh, articles. Right. You know, it just makes you wish you could... Uh, Drive out to Fishtail, Montana, yeah. and go to the Fishtail General Store, capturing 
the joyful spirit of a Montana general store. I mean, it's like Little House on the Prairie or something, a store that has milk, eggs, you know, mining boots, yeah. a few tools, yeah, well, see, but they're, they're fresh even, pies. Yeah, yeah. See, now you're now you know. you're, that's what that's the amazing thing. Uh, the fish eggs, I understand, even the cigarettes, maybe. But you know, the mining boots. I mean, they talk about an array of products here. It's almost unbelievable. It's like a superstore. Uh, they, since they, they there's a mine like, nearby, they actually uh, end up serving a lot of food because the miners drop by for breakfast when they get off. When they go to work, you know, they're driving by yeah, for dinner. I understand, but they, they have a picture that they've got different sizes of mining boots. They've got a full array of mining boots. I mean, they well, seem to have... different sizes of miners. I understand, but they seem to have everything in this general store. There's nothing they don't yeah. have. It, Baby clothes, sausages, yeah. dog treats, right. micro beers. Yeah. I mean, how okay, can so they have it, all this It's stuff? a real general store <laughs> for this a, day and age it's you a know, super you know, store. around here there there's always something in a little town there's one there's one in french town called you know it's called the general store and you go in and it's just where is that it, it's um right behind that uh you know how there's a mexican restaurant that you go yes, down yeah, yeah. on that street but that's a tiny little it's a junky little store right. with like toys right. and it's and got nothing nonsense. There. Yeah. There's nothing general about it. Right. And but in this part of the country, that's what you have. You know that. Um, that was faux pseudo general, general stores. stores. Faux general stores. Right. Faux general stores. And this so is, the idea that if we would just go out to Montana, we could, you know, have a more authentic American experience. They have of freshly baked pies next to the miners' boots. I mean, um, it's, it's 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 an unbelievable. It, it feels like it's it's some kind of uh, I don't know. Uh, Step back. Uh, idealized, in time. idealized conception. It seems impossible. Idealized conception of a general store. It just it doesn't. Yeah. It seems too amazing. Yeah. So Fishtail General Store sounds great. It's the. It was founded in 1900. It's Montana's oldest continually owned general store owned and managed by Katie Martin for the last 22 years. All right. Well, we'll go there the next time we're in Montana. Sounds cool. Yes. And then uh, another little uh, entrepreneurial story. This one about oysters. And uh, oysters uh, um, from a cart in Brooklyn, of course. Of course. Being sold by... uh, What's, a what's black his name? oysterman. Yeah, I'm just trying to get his whole name. Um, ben Harney Jr. Mm-hmm. And uh, it sounds fabulous. So anyways, so I'm attracted just to the idea that there are oysters on, uh, on the street. Right. Uh, although he says, you know, maybe people feel that's a little sketchy. And there, there are times when you say, do I really want to buy seafood from the truck on the side of the road? Is, is it properly being cared it's for? Like a, but anyway, what it also brings like to mind is that sushi. Yeah. New York used to be the capital of right. oysters. Right. Oysters were so plentiful and so cheap. Everybody ate them. It wasn't something that was special for, you know... The elite. Right. It was an everyday food. It's like and they were, and, and they were you know exported like all over they the were place. Like yeah. Hot yeah. You yeah. Would give oysters like you eat and hot key to that were the black oystermen. Mm-hmm. You know, selling, shucking, you know, etc. It it has a black history to some extent. Right. So here's this guy's great picture of him with the dreadlocks, the smile, um, and. Uh, 
um, the cart, and it just, uh, you know. But the, you know, we, we should be clear about one thing. What? When we say New York used to be that way, not when we were kids. We're no, talking, no, no, about, no, we're talking no. about like the turn of the 19th to 20th century. In the 1800s, yeah. the lower Hudson River estuary right. was home to some 350 square miles of oyster beds. All right. So, okay? yes. No, absolutely. We're, you know, and streets, street stalls like this were a common sight. Right. All right. So anyway, if you want to know more about that, and I sort of do, and I've heard about this book before. Uh, it's an old book written in 2007, Mark Kurlansky, The Big Oyster. History on the Half Shell. Um, you know, uh, that would be a fun book to read, The Big Oyster. It, uh, overharvesting and pollution led to the decline of the oyster population by 1900s. Right, it's coming back a little bit. But that's why you say, you know, only eat the oysters uh, in months with an R. Yeah. Because those were the cold months. Mm-hmm. So you could more easily transport. Oh. oysters in yeah, those that months. That now that we have refrigeration, you can go ahead and eat oysters anytime you want. As long as you can get them. As long as you can get them. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah it would be nice to run into that. I mean, uh, $3 an oyster was about what an oyster should cost. And uh, it's yeah. cool. I think he has cooked oysters too, as well as well as raw oysters. Cause you he understand, does? Yeah, because you understand some people are you know, not necessarily up to a raw oyster. So, uh, he's catering to all, all tastes. All right, so there's an obituary of a fellow named Lenny Rosenbluth, um, uh, who ate, passed away at the age of 89, who played basketball for North Carolina. Lenny Rosenbluth. And look, there's, you know, you hear stories, and I certainly when I was growing up, there was a tradition of uh, Jewish basketball players, which sounds a little bit like a contradiction. How did he end up in North Carolina? Well, there, there's a very simple answer to that. So he's he's... This guy, just to cut to the chase, though, was a, a star collegiate basketball player, Lenny Rosenbluth. He played in North Carolina after playing at James Monroe High School in the Bronx, where he grew up. Uh, this is in the 1950s. He wasn't even that great at James Monroe, but he played basketball at the Catskill Summer Resort Hotels. And you've heard me talk right, about right. seeing basketball there. Yeah. He came to the attention of Frank McGuire, who was a famous New York basketball figure and was named the North Carolina basketball coach in 1953 after coaching St. John's. And what McGuire did famously is he brought all these New York basketball players to North North Carolina. Carolina? Yes. It was called the something railroad. I don't know what they called it, but uh, he got a lot of basketball players down there and established the basketball dynasty in uh, North Carolina. Uh, they weren't all Jews by any means. Uh, they, his, the team he put together in, in the mid-50s featured Lenny Rosenbluth, who was Jewish, and four Catholic teammates, uh, guys you probably uh, haven't heard of necessarily, but uh, neither did I. Uh, and yet the team was awfully successful, uh, so much successful, uh, I'm sorry, so successful that they won the national championship in the 1956-1957 season. How did they do that? They did that... In the semifinal game, uh, Rosenbluth, who averaged something like 27 points a game during the season, um, scored, uh, oh, he averaged 30 during the season. In the semifinal game, they won an overtime game against Michigan State, where he scored 31 points after hitting two critical jump shots in the, in the third overtime uh, of that game. 
And then in the final, they played Kansas uh, and beat them again in a triple overtime game in which he had 28 points or so. And um, their opponent, Kansas, had a player he might have heard of named uh, Will Chamberlain. Uh, Will Chamberlain did not win the national championship because he was beaten by Lenny Rosenbluth. And so was team. Lenny like a real icon? Was he a household name uh, You time? know, uh, I hesitate to say household name because, uh, you know, I can't say that... Uh, Basketball is as big then as it is now. He certainly mm-hmm. wasn't on the pro level. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm stumbling a little bit because it was awfully popular on the college level. And what happened was there was a, a price-fixing scandal in New York around that time with City College, Long Island University. Uh, and that kind of put some shade on the college basketball game. So it went up and down in mm-hmm. popularity. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but the NBA was just getting going, mm-hmm. right? And uh, in terms of popularity. Now, uh, Lenny Rosenbluth was drafted by the NBA. He was a sixth player taken in the entire draft in 1957 by the Philadelphia Warriors. Those Golden State Warriors that you see on television that just won the championship. Right. They used to be in Philadelphia. Are you kidding? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, he, uh, he played for them, but they had a, a star player who was in the Hall of Fame named Paul Arizon. Uh, that was Lenny's position. They both were small forwards. Lenny didn't get much time. He only played a couple of years. Uh, Chamberlain, as you know, had a much bigger career in the NBA. Uh, and then he went to teach American history and coach basketball in North Carolina. Following that, he went to Florida and, and coached and taught for 35 years. Um, so, uh, you know, he didn't have that big an NBA career, although, frankly, um, he probably wasn't missing much financially. If anything, he might have gone to coaching and teaching because it paid as much or more than you professional than professional basketball paid at that at time. That time. Hmm. So it's a different world. But uh, the idea that Will Chamberlain was not able to overcome Lenny Rosenbluth in the uh, NCAA championship game is uh, startling. Uh, but uh, that's the way it was. Now, obviously, it's a five-on-five game. It's not Lenny against Wilt. But those were the stars of the respective teams, and uh, and we only remember one of them. So uh, there you go. I thought that was pretty interesting. He um, was eighty nine when he passed away, right? Uh, yeah. Let me see. Uh, that just yeah, I think that's right. But yes. Yeah, it's just uh, hard to think of. Uh, Wilt Chamberlain is eighty nine. Well, Will Chamberlain passed away a few years ago. Yeah, but I mean, it still it still seems. You well, know what I'm saying? It just seems. I mean, I'm. You know, I, I'm being like an old person. It no, just seems like well, yesterday. Well, well, there's something you have to understand about Will Chamberlain. Yeah. Other than the fact that he was seven feet tall, Will Chamberlain was one of the greatest athletes of all time. Yeah. Uh, in a way that you see Bill Russell now. Bill Russell uh, presents as a very older person. People get older. Yeah. But I mean, in any sport. Uh, yeah. He was a physical specimen beyond belief, even right. at, after he retired. He was unique. And an, an icon like that is pretty much ageless. He is, but yeah. but he was also physically ageless. I mean, uh, there's, there's a reason you remember Chamberlain the way you did. He wasn't okay. like, there was no period of time you said, well, that, that guy used to be Will Chamberlain. Never, okay. never right. the way. All right. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so we've talked about a couple books people ought to read, including An Immense World. And uh, you noticed in the review section, um, a review, 
of uh, a book we've been loving this year, introduced to us by uh, Pepper Abuhoff. And, um, and that is the book Night Owl, written and illustrated by Christopher Denise. Now, in the New York Times Review, it says the book's described as being for ages from four to eight, but Pepper's been loving this book since she was one and a half. That's right. So uh, I'm not sure if she's not getting every bit of it or getting something we're not getting out of it, but uh, we all love it. It's the story of a little owl. So it's night, as in K-N-I-G-H-T, yeah. uh, as in knights in armor, night owl. Oh, it's play on words. Yeah, so well, Pepper a, goes for that kind of thing. It's a little owl, and she loves owls, who wants to be a knight. Yeah. And uh, his um, journey to that end. And he, and he does want to be a knight. And he knows if he becomes a knight, he will be brave, clever, and have many friends. That's what it says and, in the book. So yes, that's what it says in the book. And it's great illustrations. It's uh, just a, a charming story. It's a great story. I, I love the story. Um, and uh, it's, you know, it's very fun to look at. So it... Uh, Pepper is a little scared of the dragon in the story. She is, but at the end there's the dragon, but there are also baby dragons, yeah. which kind of you know soothes her a little bit. But mm-hmm. she, her eyes get very wide every time she sees that picture, <laughs> and uh, you know it qualifies as one of those books that uh, um, you can enjoy as the adult reading the book to the child. Yeah. And uh, it's. Do you story. actually read the words to her, or are you just uh, sort of comment? I on read the every word. You do. It's a very simple book. Yeah. It, and then, you know, it's not. Uh, uh, not too complex in terms of uh, sentence no, structure and plot and so on. And it has things like pizza. Yeah. <laughs> you know, well, in it that she knows. So yeah, that's of know. course the test because you know I know from reading the pepper. And reading the Hazi, they're interested in turning the pages. So you have to uh, get the thoughts out quickly. Right. It's very economical prose mm-hmm. and uh, works in that sense. And, uh, you know, it'll be interesting. It may continue to work for a few years. Uh, you know, the children, like anybody, can see more and more in well, a book they well, love. Well, the age four to eight, I think, is probably... Uh, uh, thought of as an age that the child might read the book uh, themselves, I mean, is my guess, right? Possibly, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, don't, I don't really know how that works, yeah. but so far, I'm enjoying reading it. <laughs> well, that's what matters. Okay. All right, so that's all we've got today. Although we should say congratulations to the Avalanche. Yes, for winning the Stanley Cup. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, that, that was an exciting thing. You know, it's funny, when I was out there with... Uh, with Michael and his sons, you know, they have uh, as different sports sensibilities than Michael and I do, as, as Granger and, and Zeke have different sports sensibilities. But the one sport everyone can agree on, everybody loves hockey these days. I, I'm yes, telling you, yes. I, I think, uh, I don't think that's fully appreciated. I think hockey's the sport. Hockey's on the come. And of course, Sadie was way ahead on that. Oh, when my mother was watching the hockey. Well, if your mother's watching the hockey, and, then, and uh, keeping up with the score, then they're, yeah. they're in. And, and, you know, uh, she knew what was going on, too, so... Well, that's that's something. That was fun. And the hockey has... Well, you got to say that with the the big TVs that everyone has now, it's they, even more... You know, that's probably one of the reasons that, that people can watch hockey now in a way that uh, it wasn't really 
as popular years ago. On the 20-inch black and white. I grew up watching hockey on a small black and white TV and listening to games on the radio. Yeah. And that it's hard really, to follow. You need a good announcer for that. Yeah. Okay. So uh, that's it. Until next time, this is Dan Abuhoff. And Tamsin Granger with Tamsin and Dan Read the Paper. See, See you, you around. In July.